Hi, and welcome to this week's LGBT Wellness Podcast. Each week, LGBT HealthLink, a program of Centerlink, brings you a roundup of some of the biggest LGBTQ wellness stories from the past week. Get ready to listen and learn lots. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another week of our LGBT Wellness Roundup. We have an exciting edition this week that's going to be a bit of a back-to-school special, uh, looking at issues affecting LGBT youth and students. But before we get to that, you may recall that on last week's podcast, we heard a story about advanced care planning uh, in the LGBT community and how this can be a challenge because, um, you know, for a lot of us, we may not always have a, a person in our lives who we can identify um, to help carry out our planning. We may not be comfortable sharing things about our identities with uh, healthcare providers. There's a lot of issues. Um, so we had a really interesting study last week, and this week we're lucky enough to have um, two of the authors from the paper uh, here to share a little bit more about the study. So let's start out with Amanda Reich, who's going to tell us a little bit of a recap about what the study was about. Advanced care planning, or ACP, are discussions people can have with their clinicians about their preferences for care at the end of life. In the survey phase of this study, we found that LGBTQ people were much more likely than those who did not identify as LGBTQ to say that they had not done ACP due to discrimination. In follow-up interviews, we learned that while many people had shared their wishes with people close to them, they often worried about disclosing their sexual orientation or gender identity in clinical situations. Having these kinds of discussions with a doctor or nurse requires a secure, trusting relationship, and the people we talked to shared some great ideas on how clinicians can offer safe, non-judgmental care. I think the next steps for research in this area are to work with LGBTQ people in developing interventions to ensure everyone feels supported in having these discussions. Thanks for that, Amanda. And now we're going to hear from Carrie Candrian, who is the senior author on the paper, talking a little bit about why this research is so important. This research is important because when we think about advanced care planning conversations, we picture people talking about all the what ifs. What if I get in an accident? Who will speak for me? Hold my hand. But we can't get anywhere with these conversations if we don't know the who. Who is this patient's person? Who do they want in the room? The thing is, and what we found in our research, is what if you can't talk about the who because you're afraid it will jeopardize your care? This is a real fear for a lot of LGBTQ people. This fear and stigma affects what they disclose, when, and to whom. And this has a direct major impact on advanced care planning and on people's health. What this article shows is that these conversations are hard for everyone and even harder for LGBTQ communities, given this lifetime of fear and discrimination. We hope this article opens some critical conversations so meaningful change can happen and LGBTQ people can be who they are with who they love when they need it the most. Well, thanks to you both so much for sharing that information with us. It's kind of funny because my my work in LGBTQ issues really started out focused mostly on on older adults and specifically on this issue um, of advanced care planning. And then I moved to the other end of the spectrum and talk, and worked uh, a lot on youth. And that's exactly what we're, where we're going to be going this week. Is is as I mentioned before, we're going to be moving on and focusing the rest of this week's podcast on LGBT youth. So let's go to our first story: LGBT students face challenges back at school. USA Today reported on LGBT students heading back to school amid a growing number of state laws and policies targeting their identities. 
Such policies have mostly been pursuing transgender youth, including laws that have blocked their access to appropriate restrooms, sports teams, and medical care, although some laws like Florida's infamous Don't Say Gay bill uh, are affecting the broader LGBT community. And I think really, you know, even for for students who aren't trans, but who may be gay, lesbian, bi, or queer, the, the fact that these laws are popping up, even if it doesn't directly impact them, has a big mental health impact. Legal challenges to these types of laws are offering hope, but also a lot of complications. For example, in Utah, a court blocked a ban on transgender students participating in sports aligned with their gender identity, but trans students now have to face um, a case-by-case tribunal on whether or not they can participate in sports. So, I mean, it's better than than a total ban, but, you know, not an easy solution. And really important to remember that whatever the outcome, even debating these laws has been shown in studies to have a negative impact on LGBT mental health. So our thoughts are with LGBT students, um, and we're going to move on and hear more about how we can support them in the rest of the stories here in this week's uh, podcast. So our next story, gender-diverse youth in the Appalachian region. The Hill reported on a new study finding that more than 7% of youth in rural Appalachia identified as gender-diverse, meaning it's something other than cisgender. That's much higher than previous estimates, which were based on youth identifying specifically as transgender, which is a more limited term. In fact, more of the gender-diverse youth in this study held a non-binary identity than a binary one. So in other words, they may have identified as non-binary or genderqueer, agender, um, rather than um, identifying as a boy or a girl who happens to be transgender. The study supports the need for more community and school-based resources in a region where transportation, socioeconomic issues, and culture could all be barriers to youth accessing services. Next up, telehealth and more needed for gender-affirming care. Scientific American shared a report on one way to provide resources to those youth in rural areas that we just mentioned and other people um, of all ages who may not have uh, LGBT and specifically gender affirming care locally, and that is telemedicine. An organization in a rural region of Massachusetts was able to provide gender-affirming care to 1,000 patients in its first year, largely through telemedicine, by which it was able to reach trans people throughout New England. They also note the importance of having um, well-resourced providers, so, you know, like major hospitals, uh, helping to connect patients to legal services to help people navigate laws, as well as travel services for those who need to leave the state, which, of course, is going to be especially important for trans youth who may be blocked from getting the care that they need altogether in their state. So, you know, we've heard a little bit about this idea of travel support for healthcare with respect to reproductive health in the news over the past couple months. So interesting here to think that this could apply to trans um, youth and even trans adults um, as well. Next up, online and app-based resources for youth. If you're looking for remote services for LGBT youth, either youth in your in your life, in your career, or you're a youth yourself, um, you may recall, if you're a fan of the Roundup, that we talked back in uh, June um, about QChat Space, which is an initiative of Centerlink's LGBT Youth Link program and partner organizations that provides LGBT youth with online discussion groups. 
YouthLink also partnered with Hope Lab and the It Gets Better project to launch iMeet, which is I-M-I, and that's an app that helps youth explore their identities and promotes good mental health. That was launched um, in June, just in time for Pride Month. We had an interview here on the podcast with YouthLink's director, Deborah Levine, um, and if you go um, and look to our previous podcast, you'll you'll see that. There's also a link um, on our written version of the Roundup online. So definitely a few resources that are worth checking out that I wanted to come back and highlight once again, um, since we are uh, highlighting youth and students this week, um, and it's more relevant now, I think, than ever. Our next story looks at engaging youth in advocacy. The Los Angeles Blade reported on how to help LGBTQ youth deal with polarization of their identities. There were a lot of suggestions and interesting things in this article, but the part that I thought was really exciting was about how to support youth in participating in advocacy. The article says that advocacy can provide a sense of meaning um, and you know help youth, I think, to feel like they're taking some action with some of these terrible laws and policies that have come up um, or just things that are happening locally in their school and community. And there's been research to show that building these advocacy skills and participating in that as a leader um, is good for youth health. Um, But this study is looking at how to support youth in doing this so that it's done in a healthy way. So the article says that um, youth who are going to be participating in advocacy should work with a trusted adult. They should keep their own well-being front and center and not let that, you know, take a backseat to the advocacy work that they're doing, and that they should partner with experienced organizations who are able to provide youth with the support that they need. The article stresses that youth who plan to engage in advocacy in their schools, communities, and beyond will need access to good mental health services to be able to work through how they're feeling about these issues. You know, when you're advocating for something that affects you personally, that can take a big toll. Um, and also important for them to be able to address any issues that they encounter in doing this work. And now our final story of the week, minor consent laws for sexual health vary. JAMA published a study finding that all states allowed at least uh, some minors to independently consent to having HIV and sexually transmitted infection or STI testing, though in some there was a minimum age that was either um, between 12, 13, or 14 years depending on the state. However, only 33 states allowed minors to consent to STI prevention services, 35 allowed that for HIV prevention services, and about half the states had confidentiality protections to make sure that the parents of these youth or their guardians um, weren't going to be notified. Um, so, you know, some some positives here with youth able to access a lot of services, also some gaps, but the authors note that because the laws do vary state to state and there's not always good information available, that youth may not you know, even know that they have a right to access services, even when it is protected in their state. So it's an issue um, that definitely deserves some more attention and communication. Well, that brings to an end another edition of our roundup. Um, I hope you guys had as much fun um, hearing from our authors and going through some of these stories as I did. Uh, Don't forget that you can go to blog.lgbthealthlink.org if you want that written version where we have the links to all these great resources and stories. And I hope you will tune in next week for another edition of our roundup.